0: Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I am joined in the co-host chair by Liz Waterstrott. Hello, Liz. Hi, Sarah. How goes it? Oh, It's a busy day, but just just here doing my thing. <laughs> so uh, did you have anyone explain how to do your thing or perhaps <laughs> mansplain how to do <laughs> Oh, I knew you were going to bring that up. Oh, Sarah. Ah, encounter number two with meddling human being while you're running. Can I just say that I have been a runner since my early
1: teens and have gone that entire time with no one ever saying a thing to me. Wow. Yeah, running all over the country. No one has ever said a thing to me. But in the last six months, I've had quite a few encounters. And I'm not sure, Sarah, if this is a sign that the world is changing or I'm just really... Or is it me? Or is it me?
0: <laughs> Am I the drama here? <laughs> it's also like you seem so. I mean, you're very in your power. You know, you are present as a strong athlete, but you are diminutive. And Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I just, just I know people can't see us on this podcast,
1: but five foot two. I know, so you're my, you're
0: my pocket pal. I don't know why people take on you.
1: <laughs> I don't actually take up a lot of space in the world, and I'm aware of that. And I just try to keep to myself, yeah, and and stay in my lane.
0: Uh, but people just keep giving me their opinions. Oh my gosh, yeah, and you don't have a sourpuss look on your face, or no, anything. No. So I don't know what's going on. Okay, so so share this latest tale because to to reference, we're talking the other one, the one before this that I posted on the Facebook page is a TMI Tuesday. A woman who's riding her bike while you were running on a very hot, humid day, wearing shorts and a bra top, told you to put some clothes on. She told you not once, but twice.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, again,
0: I'm very small.
1: (laughs) Just out there in my sporty, sporty gear. But uh, okay, so this this past, this was last week. I just went out for a run in our neighborhood and it was like 11 in the morning. And when I say in our neighborhood, we don't live in a busy neighborhood. And I was Mm -hmm. on an interior street within the neighborhood and Mm -hmm. the street, was maybe 200 meters long and it dead ended in a Mm cul-de-sac. No cars on it. I'm on the right hand side of the street, which I understand, you know, most people will say, well, you should run on the opposite side of the street. But again, I'm very small. There's no traffic ever on this street. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just running along and this car kind of rolls up next to me and the passenger window is rolled down. And this man says, you should be running on the other side of the street. And he keeps rolling to his driveway, which is the next, you know, it's like a moment after he talks to me, he turns left into his driveway. So even if (laughs) you had been
0: on the correct side of the street, I I, I
1: literally would have been in his way if I had been running on the on the right side in his mind of the street. So anyhow, I think to myself, okay, here we go. Here we go. (laughs) And he pulls into his driveway and I decide I'm going to stand at the end of his driveway in the street and the look on his face when he got out of his car was priceless because <laughs> i'm going to i'm just going to make an assumption that he thought i was maybe some 20 something year old young gal out in her shorts and jog bra running and he was going to teach me a thing or two mm-hmm. so i say to him i go i'm sorry i didn't hear you did you say something to me back there oh.
0: and he goes
1: well I and mean, because i was kind of I don't want to say I was playing dumb, but I just I just wanted to give him a chance to, you know, say it to my face. (laughs) And so he says to me, well, you should really run on the other side of the street. And I said, oh, and he goes, well, it's for your own safety. And I said, huh, I've been running over 30 years and I did not know that. And he says, he goes, well, especially in this neighborhood. You know, Sarah, I live in Naperville, which was voted the number one place to raise children in the country. So it's not like I was running down the expressway. And it should anyone see me running down the expressway, please stop me and question what's going on, especially at home. Like, are the kids really driving you nuts? What's going on? So, um, so I say to him, I said, Well, thank you for mansplaining that to me. This has been super helpful. And I just ran on. And, you know, this is my neighborhood. Like I don't know him, but it was just a really awkward encounter and it just made me question what the heck is going on because this has happened to me a few times and I feel like I'm not doing anything differently so mm-hmm. I don't know what this means. I've I've really thought about it and I don't I don't know how you feel about that encounter as a woman but as a me as a, as a woman it just feels like a situation where somebody thought they had power over me and needed to remind me of that. Yep. Uh, Completely. and, and that's, I guess what makes me really uncomfortable about it and why I did make it a point to stand there and say to this person, listen, you, you know, basically you can't take my power from me yeah. and let's have a conversation about this. You know, it wasn't going to be a jerk
0: to him. That wouldn't be helpful, but, um, yeah, it was, it was strange. Yeah. I mean, you are not jaywalking on the wrong no. side of a busy street. I mean- no, no, And, and I even checked the city ordinance thinking is there oh, a, a
1: city ordinance i'm an ordinance follower and enforcer uh is there a city ordinance that says i need to be no it's i'm a runner i'm sure some people think i need to be on the sidewalk but i i you know this is why i run on quiet neighborhood streets because you, you don't usually have to worry about these things
0: yeah I tell, and i do have to ask how old would you guess this gentleman was? Oh. Well, I don't like to make judgments like that. But this is like
1: a late 50, (laughs) early 60 something male who just felt like they had an opinion. And and maybe he was truly concerned about my safety. Eh, I don't really get that. You know, like I don't really think that was the case here. It's just strange. You know, I don't run down the street shouting my opinions and judgments at people. So I just feel like please don't do that to me.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I when I see runners on the running on the wrong side of the street, when when they're running with traffic, not facing traffic, I certainly think, hey, get on the correct side of the street, but I don't tell them that. And I just I'm so tired of older white men telling (laughs) us what to do in this country. Like, just stop. Yeah, it just
1: yes. I know we don't like to get political on this podcast, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I just think we have to be careful about normalizing that it's okay to go out and shout our opinions into the world uh, mm-hmm. like that. It's okay yeah. to just live quietly and, and keep it to yourself in a way, although there's times when it's good to share it. But, you know, and I, I thought maybe that, like this is a geographical thing because I'm from New York City. And mm-hmm. when you're from a city, you grow up and you're raised in a city, you don't just run around shouting things at people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so maybe it's just a suburban thing. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I applaud you for talking to him and kind of calling him out because also that could have been a really upsetting situation for some runners who had had bad experiences in the past. I mean, it could have been kind of triggering to have a car come all up alongside of you, slow down, roll their window down, you know, right? Yeah, that, that could have really sent up some danger flares in some people's minds. Absolutely. So, particularly because he was about to turn into his driveway and stop. If it really concerned him that much, then pull into your driveway and then be like, hey, like from his driveway, say something to you.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And, and how weird is it that you would do this right in front of your own home?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
1: I, yeah. 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 Which think- again goes back to I just think that maybe he perceived me as just helpless little girl out there running Mm -hmm. needed Mm -hmm. a man to save her or Mm -hmm. teach her a lesson
0: so yeah 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 i think loogies will be hawked onto this (laughs) driveway maybe (laughs) no i i'm you know this is my space and i've lived here for
1: 10 years and and i run by these houses all of the time so the next time i see him i think i'm just going to say hi and ask him if he wants to come run with me and we can run on any side of the street that he wants and i won't judge him (laughs)
0: run right down the middle of the street. It's a parade. It's a parade. Yeah. 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 There's, there's some mansplaining that happens on the pickleball court that, you know, sometimes there are some men who are aware that it could be categorized as that. So they'll say, Oh, do you want a pointer? Or I could give you some advice on that. Would you like it? But other guys just let it go, you know, just share without ask, without consent. Yes. And yeah, because yeah. there are a lot of fifty-plus white men on the pickleball court, and they're all pros. They're all former pickleball pros, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I stopped playing where I used to play. Even though there were much nicer facilities, it was I would just couldn't take the the privilege and the and the. I don't know, the attitude that these people exuded Yeah, just was like, "Mm -hmm, bye-bye.
1: Yeah. And and that's the right call because, you know, I certainly don't want to encourage women to just face up to random men on the street either. You know, Mm -hmm. you you need to make the right judgment call. And sometimes the the right call there is like you did just, just leave the situation and say nothing and, Mm -hmm. you know, carry on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we actually have a man as a guest on the podcast today, but we won't take it out on Steve. No. So, so this topic and guest was suggested by you, Liz. Yeah. So our guest is Steve Magnus, a performance coach who works with athletes, entrepreneurs and executives, as well as serves as a consultant on mental skills development for professional sports teams. Steve is also co-creator of The Growth Equation, an online platform dedicated to the understanding and practice of performance and well-being. And he also writes for a number of Publications, Runners World, Outside, Sports Illustrated, and the like. And the reason, Liz, I think you suggested we talk to Steve now is his latest book was recently published. It's called Do Hard Things with a subtitle of Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Liz and I will talk with Steve about resiliency and mental skills right after this sponsor break. Stick around. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Steve.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a bit about yourself as an athlete, um, especially thanks to the interweb. I know you were one heck of a speedy runner in high school.
2: I was. So, (laughs) um, yeah, as an athlete, I actually grew up playing other sports. So I kind of fell in love with soccer and baseball and all that good stuff until I joined high school cross country and I think ran too well. And I, rem- <laughs> I remember after one of my first cross country meets, my my coach coming up and saying, Steve, you need to just focus on running like you could be really good at this. And I was I was ignorant and I was like, I don't know what that means, but OK, this this adult <laughs> is telling me this. So I'm going to do it. Um, so that's what happened. I I was a really good high school runner. By my senior year, I ran the mile in four minutes and one second and was oh. the fastest uh, high schooler in the country that year. So it was wow, kind of, yeah, it was, it was a very quick improvement and almost unexpected to a degree, but it was quite an experience. And then from there... <laughs> I had all these dreams of like, well, I'm the best high schooler in the nation. I'm going to go on and do great things and Olympics. And that's what everyone talked about around me. And then I fundamentally did not get better in college. Although I I competed all, all throughout college and worked really hard for whatever reason, I just kind of stagnated. And in my own running life, that was kind of this uh, contrast of like reaching the kind of top of the top and then having to like adjust and find again, you know, that love for sport and not seeing progress.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. So you have a great athletic background and I'm sure you've been coached many times over the years. And now you are a coach yourself. You have a coaching business, but you are a performance coach. So tell us more about that. What is a performance coach?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because it's very nebulous and I don't even know if I can explain it myself, but here, here's the gist of it. For a very long time, after I finished my college degree in running, I was focusing entirely on running in track and field. I coached runners in the traditional sense, helped them get better, all of that good stuff. And then I, you know, I'm kind of a curious person. So I I started dabbling and writing and exploring other areas And all of the sudden, gosh, I think like three or four years ago, I started getting calls from athletes and then professional teams who weren't running, like, you know, teams from the NBA and like, you know, Major League Baseball and rugby teams across the pond. And my first reaction was kind of like, I coach track. (laughs) I help people run faster around in circles and through cross country courses. Like, what do you want to hear from me from? But what I quickly realized is that, you know, there are similarities that we can take from the running or athletic world and apply to other sports or even apply to other avenues. So in the last couple of years, both of my writing and then coaching, I still coach, you know, some marathoners and do that thing. But I also expand that out to just help people in whatever avenue or rain, you know, way that they they need help in, which is often taking things that I've learned from running or researching around the sport and applying it to these other fields. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Nice. Well, as runners, we all know that many lessons learned in running have bleed over, positively bleed over into other aspects of our life. So I can see that being pretty natural progression. So I'd love to hear about the origin of your book, Do Hard Things. Was it an endeavor during COVID lockdown to keep from going, you know, bonkers? Or was it something that was always kicking around in your brain?
2: You know, it's been kicking around in my brain for a while, uh, mostly because of, you know, my running background and experiences. What else is running but being alone in your head with (laughs) all these like emotions and fatigue and pain and discomfort And then these thoughts that come with it that often tell you to, you know, quit or find a hole to step in or (laughs) find a way out, essentially. And that to me is like that's the central part of it is you kind of have to wrestle with that, navigate it, and work through it. So this idea of like toughness and like navigating our inner inner world has always kind of been in my mind. But really, I think COVID provided that impetus where it's like, okay. I now have more space and time (laughs) because the world has shut down. Like, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to make sense of it? And, and I really kind of wrestled with, it gave me that space to kind of wrestle with the topic that has always been there and maybe flesh it out so that I could kind of make sense of it. Because the secret I'd tell you for writing is you always write the books that you're wrestling with and need yourself. Mm -hmm. So, In a lot of ways, this is a book that's been in my head for a while, but I didn't have that space to wrestle with it and figure it out until the world kind of shut down for a while.
1: (laughs) So let's dive right into what you suggest in the subtitle of your new book. So Steve, how do we get toughness wrong?
2: Yeah, so I think a lot of this, and this is why I love talking to you guys, because as runners, I think you'll get it because what I'm trying to essentially do is say, Hey, all those lessons that often, you know, especially boys and, and men learned from like football, where it's like, you know, just put your head down, ignore everything, just push through the pain and ignore all your feelings, emotions and all that stuff. That can work, but it's, it's like taking a hammer and saying, this is your one tool to get through every difficult <laughs> thing you have in life. Yeah, And as we know, like a hammer doesn't work for everything. And that's what I found in this like ideas on our traditional ideas of toughness is we traditionally think like this grind through things or that from a leadership or coaching standpoint that you know, extreme discipline or extreme demandingness is the way that we create tough teams. And it's simply not really the case. If you look at the research, what it shows is A, we need a diversity of tools. So instead of just putting our head down, sometimes we need to be able to create distance or gain perspective or to just kind of pause for a moment and let things chill out. From a leadership standpoint, tough teams, tough organizations, resilient teams aren't created by, you know, being kind of an authoritarian dictator. What they're created with is when you provide a space that is secure, where people can take risks, where people can be themselves and be motivated internally. And if they do that, they're going to be able to handle, you know, difficult challenges much more so than if you're sitting there screaming and yelling at them. So it's really kind of, you know, again, trying to maybe drag our ideas of toughness from the, I don't know, 1950s into, you know, the 2020s.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Your book, first of all, it's, it's wonderful. And it's really good at providing just these actionable ways that you can improve toughness every day. But if you had to to pick one thing that people could do to improve toughness every day, what would that one thing
2: be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to answer these questions because your books are like your babies because yeah. you're like, Oh, <laughs> I spent, you know, years wrestling with this stuff. So read it all. But yeah. I think if there's one thing, I really think we underestimate the impact of our environment is we tend to think of toughness as almost like this individual thing. But what the science and psychology is very clear on is that if our environment supports us then we're more likely to take on challenging things and you can see this you know if we take it outside of the athletic world you see this in the workplace all the time is if your environment is you know your workplace is something where you feel supported where you feel like you have a voice where you feel like you can make progress and you feel like you belong you're going to drive and take on difficult challenges if you're micromanaged if you're just demeaned if you feel like there's no way to move up in the ladder regardless of how much individual quote unquote strength you have you're going to feel a little bit unmotivated burned out etc cetera, etc cetera. so to me it's you know what well what how do you get tougher is create that environment that supports you pursuing your endeavors in a positive manner That means the friends and colleagues that are on this journey together, maybe your team or running club. It means your coaches. It means like your support at home with your family or spouse or significant others supporting you and taking on these things that are very important and have meaning to your life.
0: I have, in addition to being an avid runner, I'm injured right now, but I am addicted to pickleball right now. And (laughs) so... so listening to you talk, my eyes have so been opened in about the past month. I've had a big jump up in my skill level. And I sort of stepped back and I thought, well, why is that? I thought part of it is, is I play so much better when I feel supported by my partner that I'm playing with. And I don't know how much you know about pickleball, Steve, but typically you just get paired up with a random person that Mm -hmm. you just, a bunch of you show up and and, you know, two on and two people go on. And so that if the oftentimes a guy, if I'm playing with a guy and he's like, Oh, nice shot. Hey, great. That, you know, nice try or good idea or whatever. I'm like, so I've started to say thank you to those guys or women, whoever says it to me. And like, even yesterday, I just said to this one guy, Brian, who's a man of very few words. And he's a couple of times said, good shot, good placement. And I said, Brian, thank you. I play so much better when I feel supported. And I think he thought like, did you just come from therapy? But like. <laughs> It just I don't know. I think I think if we foster people acting supportive toward us, then maybe they'll go out and be supportive toward other people. So yeah.
2: I, I absolutely love that, Sarah, because what that gets at is not only the support that is important, but it also gives, you know, it gives you a way to develop what I'd call the, like this inner confidence. Mm -hmm. um, because you're giving yourself like evidence that, Hey, I am doing a good job. Hey, I am Mm -hmm. making progress. And you're like acknowledging and validating that. And I think that's so important because, you know, whenever we play sports and I'm not a pickleball aficionado, but Mm -hmm. I, I know what it is to a degree, but whenever we play sports, often it's like those doubts and insecurities that, that raise in our head. Where we're just like, oh, like, am I really good at this? Oh, look at this. I messed up this shot. And you're mm-hmm. just like locked in on that and you can't forget it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, acknowledging and like having other people who almost fight that fight for you because they're telling you, like, hey, that was great. That it's almost like your brain interprets that as like, oh, That's a piece of evidence that I should listen to that I really am doing okay at this. Mm -hmm. Forget these doubts over there. So it's a great, almost like double strategy to be able to up your game and perform how you want to perform.
0: Exactly, and also that I think I think one negative inner voice can you know you need five comments, positive comments from other players or you know people important people in your life to outweigh that one like oh that sucked I'm so bad at this or whatever so I just kind of feel like you need to stack the deck in your favor and get get as many kudos and accolades and support as you can get. So well, you mentioned inner confidence, this next question is about quiet confidence. And in this new book, I especially like the chapter entitled True Confidence is Quiet, Insecurity is Loud. So pretty much, very much what we were just talking about. Could you you know, talk a little bit more about that quiet or inner confidence?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is another thing that for whatever reason, society has often gotten a little backwards as we tend to think confidence is bravado and mm-hmm. like this external, like, oh, I have to display that I'm confident. Mm-hmm. And in the book, I think what really made this really clear in researching it is I was talking to a military operative who went into the special forces who told me about how they're handle like crazy things, like getting dropped off in the woods as part of you know training and being told just survive with your team. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, who who survives? Like who makes it, right? And it was like, you would think, you know, people think it's the person who like comes in as, oh, I'm super confident. I got this, you know, no problem, et cetera. But he's like, those are the people who often fade because what happens is they set inappropriate expectations. It's almost like they've been telling their brain that, oh, I've got this. I'm confident but then when reality smacks you in the face and you're actually faced with a challenge you're just setting yourself up for a greater fall where your brain goes like hey wait a minute you told us you had this but you really don't so like we're going to sound the alarm and go straight into survival mode so what we really have to do is develop that quiet inner confidence which is a more realistic view of you know our appraisal of kind of what we're going to face versus what our capabilities are. So Mm -hmm. it's not saying like, Oh, I've got this. It's saying, you know what? I know based on experience, I'm capable of X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to do the best that I can and try and accomplish what I know I can, or maybe press it just a little bit further out from, I can in that reality that almost a little bit of doubt kind of keeps you humble and focused and it keeps your brain prepared for, okay, I can keep going, I can keep handling this thing because, you know, while it might be a little tough and I'm not quite sure, I'm not going from certainty to, you know, oh, reality is going to hit me in my face.
1: That's that's great. I mean, so many of us have been on a start line and, you know, we just, we need to tap into that inner confidence And speaking of start lines, you know, I I heard you mention, I think I was listening to your podcast, one of your podcasts on coaching with Jonathan Marcus. And you were talking about how pro runners were reaching out to you or or posting maybe on social media about the value they found in your new book. And why do you think pro runners are connecting to this? And do you feel like a runner of any level, you know, because we have a lot of we a lot of fast runners we have people who are fast walkers and they just want to get across the finish line. How can they also benefit from the lessons in your book?
2: Yeah, you know, it's really cool to see feedback because, again, one of the things as a writer is you spend a couple of years writing this thing and it's literally you, your editor, and a handful of people who read it. So you think it's great or good enough, but you really have no idea until it goes out into the world. So it's it's one of the most nerve wracking and exciting experiences. You're like, okay, I hope people receive this well. But I think what it is and what I learned in in this book and talking to, you know, honestly, it's like my secret homage to runners just kind of disguised Mm -hmm. and and sold to everybody else. But... (laughs) When you look at the best of the best, we often hold them up as like, oh, they must be different. They must be unique. They have something just like they're born with something that I don't. And that can be true to a degree in terms of their physical capabilities. But when it looks at from the psychology, they face the same challenges that you or I do. I'll never forget sitting in a room with a couple of the US's best marathoners and just asking them, I'm like, well do you ever think about quitting in a race? And all of them are like, oh yeah, for sure. One of them was like, yeah, during my best race, like I kept looking at the curb and being like, oh, I should just step on that just so I can mm. get get out of this race. Like I think about dropping out all the time. And then you talk to new runners or recreational runners and they're facing the same kind of challenges because it's normal, like we're all human. The difference is elite runners tend to have developed in a more diverse set of coping skills mm. than the recreational runner partly because they've just spent a lot more time doing it and experiencing it but also because often they're a little more intentional on their mental game so as far as the book i think it applies you know my hope is that it applies to everyone from your beginner to your elite because we're all facing those same doubts and insecurities we all have that alarm that goes off in our head that tells us hey stop slow down and in fact as you know i've been running at a decent level since high school so i've been running for decades and similar to you sarah i went i went through an injury you know relatively recently where i didn't run for a while and mm-hmm. then i then i came back and i'm like okay i can finally run i'm going to go out the door and it's it was so kind of humbling because you know within the first mile it's almost like I, I'd never run before because my brain's just going like, what are you doing? Like, you're not in shape. Slow down. Like, stop. Go back home. And I'm like, I've been doing this for two decades. Come on, brain. You should be used to it. But what it tells me there is that our mental side is just like a muscle. It's a it's like we can train it up and it'll detrain a little bit if we haven't felt that experience for a while. So for all listeners, it's like I think that's the good news is you just got to keep training that muscle just like we we put in the miles or do the workouts.
0: Mm. I like that. We can train it up. Yeah. All right. So we're talking about confidence. Let's talk a little bit about fear, which you do in the book. And and in addition to running and my pickleball, I'm also an avid open water swimmer. And I was recently talking to one of our other coaches who also loves lake swimming. And she and I both admitted that no matter how many times we swim outdoors, we always feel a pang of like fear or trepidation as we walk into the water. And so how can we make that feeling work to our advantage, whether it's the start of a swim, a track workout, a 10K race, any of those situations?
2: Yeah. So I think the first part is understanding what that is. Mm. So those emotions are essentially your brain kind of communicating and telling you just to be prepared. Mm. So in this sense, that fear is like, hey, this might be a little bit different or more dangerous than sitting, you know, in our car or in our office. (laughs) So what happens is you feel that fear because your body is unleashing some hormones to get you to be prepared and to get you a little bit more focused so that you're aware of your environment, maybe more so than just driving on your commute. So Mm -hmm. that's important because that tells us, okay, this is just us getting prepared. Mm. And the wonderful thing about our emotions is they are context dependent. Mm. What that means is we assign almost like the importance to the experience, the feelings that we have so that we interpret them. And and maybe the way to mm. the to get at this is so before lining up for a race I could call I could say I'm anxious. Or I could say I'm excited. And the underlying biology is remarkably similar. But what we're doing is we're framing it as either something to approach and take on or something that might lead to avoidance and et cetera. So that nervousness could be interpreted either way. So you're kind of in charge to a degree of, well, how am I going to interpret this? The other things that I think are really important on like feeling that fear is, when we experience stress or fear it tends to as as i said earlier it tends to narrow us so we tend to focus and get locked in on the scary thing that is like triggering that reaction and what that why that matters is that tends to make like the emotions and the feelings 10x worse because <laughs> it's all our brain thinks about and all our mind wrestles with is what's that fear or anxiety well, one of the ways to kind of wrestle back some control is to zoom out, to gain some perspective, to make you realize that yes, you f- might be feeling fear, but like to make your brain aware that, hey, you know, this isn't the end of the world. And one of the stories that really brought this home to me is I was talking to a good friend, Phoebe Wright, who used to be a professional uh, track athlete who ran the 800. And I remember talking to her about, well, what was it like when you're standing on the starting line of the finals of the Olympic trials? And she's like, Oh, it's it's crazy nerve-wracking. Because you're <laughs> you're you're sitting here and you're like, everybody's watching me, and my job is kind of on the line. So either either I'm gonna get fired after this or I'm gonna get my contract will be renewed. So I was like, Well, how do you deal with that? And she's like, simple, you gain perspective. So when standing on the line. Were her thoughts of like, oh, man, this is dangerous or like, you know, get it together? No, she was like, just remember, Phoebe, this is track and field. No one really cares about track and fields. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, even if the people in the stands do like the only people who really care about you are like your mom, your dad, you know, your sisters, your coaches. And even if you come in dead last, they're still going to love you. And I think that that's such a wonderful way of, it doesn't take all the anxiety away, but it again, kind of broadens your perspective to make you realize that, yes, it's okay to feel a little bit nervous, but this isn't life or death like it often feels.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So switching gears from fear, let's talk about something similar and equally as uncomfortable, and that would be discomfort. So I did a race this past weekend and I was running really well and it got really uncomfortable in a way that running that pace doesn't usually get and i'm so embarrassed to admit this but even after all my years of racing i freaked out and i took it as a sign that something was wrong with me or things weren't going well um and it it reminded me of this this Quote in your book where you said opening oneself up to experience whatever thought or sensation enters our conscious awareness does not give that sensation power. It drains it of control. And rather than opening myself up to, well, maybe this is a sign that you're breaking through or you're on the right track. I got completely closed. I froze and it had all this control over me. So what can, you know, runners, athletes do when they experience discomfort, maybe more than they're used to? What can they do to work through that?
2: Or diffuse it. Yeah. You know, don't don't worry, Liz. That's an experience that we all have. I still have <laughs> that as well. Um, and and that's kind of the heart of like how do you navigate these things? Because that's what happens when we experience discomfort. The way I like to think of it is our brain is protective. So if it experienced discomfort, of course it's gonna tell us to freeze. Yeah. Because like it's saying, well, why are you keep pushing, Liz? Can't you tell this hurts a lot? <laughs> Stop, slow down, constrain, Constrict. So we freeze. So the way to deal with that is, again, is often we think, oh, I've just got to kind of resist it. Well, when we resist something, it often comes back tenfold. Mm-hmm. So the, what you want to be able to do in that moment is learn how to, again, kind of create space to kind of like turn down that alarm so that you can understand what actually is going on. And there's a a number of different strategies that you can do. You know, one is actually during the middle of the race, you can try to gain perspective, like we talked before race. Another thing that I think really helps is changing how you talk to yourself. So there's some fascinating research that essentially shows that if in those moments, you change that inner voice from being, you know, having a first person, so, you know, I can do this, whatever, Uh, To second or third person, you or Steve or Liz or Sarah, and you change that voice, what happens is your brain interprets it differently. Hmm. It creates what we call psychological distance, almost like your brain saying like, hey, this is weird normally this voice telling me to stop or to keep going is like, I've got this, but now they're saying Steve's got this, like (laughs) what's going on? And it creates just a little of that space in that emotional reaction that often comes with that freak out gets turned down a notch and you can actually do this. You know, another inner voice thing is you can go from an inside voice to outside. So taking your inner voice from your self-talk to saying stuff out loud and again i realize that may make you sound or look a little bit crazy but <laughs> if you watch other athletes for example professional tennis athletes before they're about to serve often in a very tricky stressful you know game point you can often watch them and they're muttering to themselves <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: well again the science and psychology kind of shows the latest theory tells us like well when your brain kind of hears you speaking out loud It almost interprets it as that friend telling you you've got this or a great job, Mm -hmm. which is different from that inner voice that is telling you to, like, you know, freak out, stop, slow down. And there's tons of different other strategies. But the way I look at it is if you're in one of those freak out moments, how can you change either your inner voice, your mindset, your perspective, or even what you're focused on to kind of dislodge you out of, out of that moment, because again, maybe another example is we tend to narrow, as I said, in those moments where we maybe get, where we get stuck on like the feeling of pain in our legs, and it's like, "Oh, my legs feel like lead, my breathing is so heavy." And what happened is your attention is narrowed in on that. Well, one of the ways to escape that or give you enough space is to literally just shift your attention. Focus on on the runner ahead or your coach or the, you know, the people in the, you know, cheering you on, whatever it is, but something that drags your attention away from this feeling it's stuck on can often give you that space to kind of navigate and get through that freak out so that you can get back to a place where you're in charge.
0: Mm-hmm. And I sometimes think I'm a big believer in in talking out loud in a race, and I I do it. I've talked about before on the podcast about that I I say things out loud that I want to hear, but that I think might be encouraging for someone else. So like, you know, let's kill this hill, or we're taking names or something like that. And I, you know, have a fair bit of bravado. So it's not super difficult for me, but I think some people need to practice that, you know? So when you're on a stretch of a road and you're alone during your 18 miler for the marathon training, just practicing some stuff out loud, you know, like, I don't know, it it, it works. You probably need to hear it on that long run. And then, then you'll be more apt to be able to open your mouth and have words come out when you actually need it.
2: A 100%. I think all of this is You know, we often think of our workouts or our our training as like the physical preparation. But if you can add in some of these tools from a mental standpoint, like talking out loud or whatever have you, then you're going to be more apt to use them in a race. And then I think the other brilliant thing about that strategy, Sarah, that you mentioned you do is that. It's not only talking out loud to yourself, but like what you do when you talk out loud. So you help other people is you you kind of shift the importance where it's like, oh, it's not just me out here alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I'm here with others. And I think that is another great way to change your perspective and your attention and all that stuff, which kind of takes the load off of, you know, oh, it's me alone struggling through this and, Mm -hmm. and woe is me. And you've got, no, we're a group in this. Like everybody's in this together. We're all working hard.
0: Yeah, and I think that that is what's, you know, I think a lot of us, myself included, have kind of forgotten the power of a race scenario, at, you know, during the pandemic, either because of shutdowns or fewer people. But hearing you talk, Steve, reminded me of the last marathon I did, which was now five years ago, but that ends up running alongside a woman from our community. We just happened to be wearing the same tank top from our store, and her name's Lisa. We didn't say much to each other, but there was a part of me that just felt like I got to keep my pace up because it seems like Lisa can keep going this pace. So I don't want to let her down. And like, just there seemed to be almost an unspoken communication between the two of us that really helped me get out of my own head and feel like I was doing something bigger than myself, which felt really satisfying.
2: You know that I love that because that gets at one of the central parts of enhancing performance is actually having some sort of sense or purpose that is bigger than yourself Mm. because it like eases the burden And often we can create that. We think like, oh, I've got to have this grand thing. But often it can be something as simple as, you know, we've been running this, me and Lisa or whoever have been Mm -hmm. running this race together. Like we're in this together. Mm
0: -hmm. So Mm -hmm.
2: like, this is us. And there's also, (laughs) you know, while I was researching the book, I came across this fascinating, a couple of fascinating studies that show when we feel like we're connected to others around us going through something difficult it makes the difficult seem more manageable. Mm -hmm. And there was this interesting study where they just took a bunch of cross country runners. They put them at the bottom of like a very steep hill, like San Francisco style steep, you know? (laughs) And they were like, they said, you know, tell us how steep this is before you go run up, run up it. And when it was just the solo cross country athlete by themselves, they would say, oh, this is so steep. It's like 30 degrees. Like it's running up a mountain, whatever it have <laughs> you. When they took people and had a teammate or just another athlete and they were going to run up it together, mm. their guesses on how steep that hill were much, much less. They'd say, oh, it's 15 degrees. And then they'd be mm. like, we can run up it. No problem. Mm. And, I, and I think for whatever reason, when we have others around us who are doing difficult things, it's almost like a performance enhancer. It's almost like it's not me alone out here suffering. Like I've got someone else going through the same thing and us together are stronger than than me by myself.
0: Mm, I like that. I just kind of feel like you tapped into like what Another Mother Runner and our Train Like a Mother Club is about is being around other people, helping each other do difficult things. Um, I like that. I like that. So, but there is a part of me that also goes inside in a race, I don't always feel like I'm helping Lisa or Lisa helping me. Um, in some of my last two marathons, I think particularly of the last time I ran Boston, I was able to slip into this amazing state of focus. And it almost seems like a tunnel vision, but in a good in the zone way. And those experiences really jumped out, came to my mind while reading what you wrote about zooming in versus out. So can you talk about that push pull, please?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what we have is there's a couple different like optimum performance states, essentially. And what you're describing is like being in the zone, which is also called like flow. And we perform really well there. And what happens is our world kind of narrows in around us and we can kind of, you know, do amazing things. On the flip side is a state called like clutch states, which are a little bit different. Where we feel like, hey, we're in we're kind of in the zone, but it's really freaking difficult. (laughs) And it's it's almost like the, you know, the last part of the race where you're just like, oh, I'm I can see my goal and I'm gonna double down and put in the effort because like you find this energy out of nowhere to, you know, get under that Boston qualifier or whatever it is, because you needed to harness it. And what the research and psychology tells us is that these states both lead to optimum performance. But they often come about in slightly different ways. And that's where this kind of zooming in and zooming out comes in is that, you know, it's not about finding like this one perfect state. It's about having the flexibility to go with that. Hey, I'm in this tunnel vision and to just kind of keep flowing. Or if that's, if you can't find that space, then it's about, doing the opposite, which is like zooming out and being able to like get through this difficult moment and make that decision as well. So maybe to make it clear for listeners, there was some wonderful work done on elite marathoners comparing them to novices. Mm -hmm. And what it found is that elite marathoners are able to zoom in and out so shift their attention to hey how is my body feeling like this is how i feel internally which is very zoomed in to hey there's the crowd which is very zoomed out or hey i'm gonna think about what i'm gonna have for you know lunch after this marathon which is way zoomed out right you're (laughs) changing your perspective elite marathoners were able to bounce back and forth between during the marathon with what met their difficulty in that moment. Hmm. So during one mile, they might be entirely zoomed out. During the next, they might be zoomed in. And they would change based on how they were feeling that allowed them to keep performing. On the flip side, novices tended to get stuck. Hmm. So if they zoomed in and they said, hey, I'm going to pay attention to how I'm feeling, then they tended to stay there and they couldn't get away from it. They didn't have anywhere else to go. So my, my advice to listeners is to practice changing your attention during difficult moments. Practice what changing what you are focusing on during you know, your long run or tempo run or whatever your workout is, because the best of the best are able to say, hey, you know what? I, will, I was trying to pay attention to my breathing to calm myself down, but that didn't work here. So I'm going to go in the opposite <laughs> direction instead of keeping and going back to the same thing over and over again. Yeah.
1: So Steve, when I asked my athletes if they had a question for you uh, about this book, one of them, who's a mom of six, very busy, loves to do Ironmans, she said, when is it okay to not do a hard thing? And it it made me think about the chapter in the book called Know When to Hold Him, Know When to Fold Him, and the idea of learned helplessness to learned hopefulness. So is there a time when it's okay to not do a hard thing or you know, someone who's maybe really stressed or has a lot going on in life, maybe that hard thing feels too hard? How would you answer that question?
2: Absolutely. That's a wonderful question. And what I would say is we often have a stigma around quitting. And I think that does us a disservice because often quitting is the right decision or in this sense, maybe not quitting, but not doing the hard thing is the right decision in that moment. And to me, and this is what I tried to redefine in, in toughness and the, in do hard things, is that being tough isn't about always going towards the hard thing. It's about being able to take wise action, which sometimes is embracing discomfort. And sometimes it's saying, you know what? it's not my day. This isn't helpful. In the kind of analogy I use that works well for runners is it's kind of understanding the difference between if you're running in a race or in a workout, understanding the difference between pain you can work through versus pain that might signal potential injury. Mm -hmm. And if it's that pain that signals injury, the smart and tough thing to do is to stop often because, you know, the ramifications could be injured for weeks or months or what have you. And often our kind of mind tells us to keep pushing and we end up hurt. I know I've done that way too many times. Um, So I guess to answer your question is absolutely sometimes it's the right thing is to not do the hard thing. What I think it's about is cultivating the self-awareness to understand so that you can say, okay, Is this challenge something that aligns with my values? Is it something that aligns with something that I need and want right now? Or is it something that doesn't align and frees me up to have the space to take on a different challenge or the space to recover, the space to recover so I can take on the next challenge? So it's really about that self-awareness piece and then being intentional on why why you're doing that.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic answer.
0: <laughs> so
2: let's go back to confidence for a second. I was
0: thinking about it yesterday on the pickleball court. It's been a real eye-opener for me to see the various, quote-unquote, posture of other players, especially women. And I've been playing a fair bit with this woman, Jennifer, who I really like and kind of started out at similar levels. And she just... I, I, we've both gotten better, but I just see that she apologizes for a lot of shots. She s- really seems to lack confidence. And so finally, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to say something to her. Like, she's gotten so much better. I wasn't playing for a couple months because of this back injury. And, you know, so I told her, I'm like, I'm going to be on you about this. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to loan you some of my, you know, chutzpah out here. And she said that it's you know, it's interesting to her because she said she was super confident in a, in her 40-year sales career, but that in athletics it's new, and so that she has issues summoning that confidence in an athletic setting. So what do you say to people who maybe have ample confidence in their home life or in their work life, you know, they're, they're a great volunteer at their school, whatever it is, but that when it comes to running or taking on a triathlon, something like that, they just feel... Unworthy somehow.
2: Yeah, this is actually very familiar to me and something that occurs to a lot of people because when we have success in one domain, we gain confidence in it. Mm -hmm. And then we're used to acting out of that place of we almost see it as like a personal attribute. We say, I am a confident person because in sales or business or at home, like Mm -hmm. I know what to do. Mm -hmm. And then we enter this other area where we're a beginner and it almost it's almost like we've entered this foreign land and our brain reacts like as if it is because it says like, what are you doing? You're <laughs> supposed to be a confident person, but like, you don't know what you're doing out here. So we almost, it's almost like we set ourselves up for failure. So what what would I tell someone who came to me with that? First, I think it's shedding your expectations and this this idea of perfection, which often comes from, you know, our, our other career, we think I'm confident in this. I'm a confident person. Why am I not confident in over here? Well, it makes sense kind of why you're not confident because it's new. You need to almost take that beginner's mindset and that explorer's mindset where you're like, I'm going to see how good I can be and stop comparing myself to, you know, Susie, the, the saleswoman or whatever have you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that also comes down to is an important part on that confidence, especially for new things is lowering the bar. Mm. We often think confidence comes from like raising the bar, you know, over and over and over again. But to me, it's about knowing and showing up so that I can meet my expectations like day after day after day. Mm. And if you do that, what happens is you stack enough good performances over time Mm -hmm. that You're essentially giving yourself the evidence that you should be confident. And and the final part of that I'd say is, okay, great. I'm doing this. I'm getting better. But often what we do is we don't tie our practice to that kind of like psychological mental idea of confidence. So what you have to do is if you're struggling, this is almost reinforce it. Have ways to remind yourself that there is evidence you're getting better. A great way to do this in running is simply a running or training log and sometimes a running log with comments right? or journaling where you just write, you know what, today I made it through this long run or today I went through this really bad patch during the run and I might not have you know, performed, quote unquote, as best as I could, but I figured out how to get to the other side and get to the next mile and finish things up. If you can have some way to record and almost reinforce those moments that provide that evidence for confidence, then over time, you build this this almost bank where your brain starts to realize, your mind starts to realize like, oh, okay, I can do this thing. Oh, my capabilities are higher than than I thought. Oh, I should have a little bit more confidence.
0: I have to say, I'm so glad you said that, Steve, because just this week, I started a pickleball diary. <laughs> 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 which will and soon I... be your new memoir <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> forget diary of a wimpy kid this is pickleball diary and, and it was because there were certain standout games and it w- didn't necessarily win all of them or even points and i'm like and i would replay them in my head when i would have like trouble going to sleep or need to kind of calm down a little and so i'm like Uh, There's going to come a point where I've played so much that I'm, you know, they'll fade from memory, but I want to retain them. So yeah, so I I switched my, my, uh, I had a book that I was keeping, I'm teaching myself Spanish on Duolingo, and I changed it from being my Spanish notebook to being my Pickleball Diary.
2: I I love it. That's that's brilliant. I love everybody should have their own pickleball diary.
0: Too much. All
1: right. Well, Steve, in the spirit of winding this down, the last chapter in your book is finding meaning in discomfort. And you said, when we explore instead of avoid, we are able to integrate the experience into our story. We're able to make meaning out of the struggle, out of suffering. Meaning is the glue that holds our mind together, allowing us both to respond and recover. So as we look ahead to fall race season, you know, people are doing marathons, uh, Ironmans, how can they find meaning in their discomfort to uh, be able to show up at their best on race day?
2: Yeah, you know, I think this comes back to what we talked about earlier a little bit uh, is that purpose is really kind of jet fuel that allows you to do and handle really difficult things. So to me, it comes back to this inner question of inner drive is like, why are you pursuing the difficult activity often running that you're choosing to do? Like, there's some reason why you chose this sport and chose to sign up for this thing that often can you know, be very difficult and you have to battle through injuries and all this good stuff. And I think really reflecting on that and finding that can help not only your performance, but also can help your enjoyment of the activity itself is when things, when we can find kind of meaning in the journey of going through it, then that often not only helps us performance wise, but it also helps us from a life standpoint of like, well-being, happiness, contentment, because we stop focusing on judging ourselves based on, well, did I meet my goal to run under three hours for the marathon or what have you? But we see that a large part of it is just setting out on this difficult task that pushes us outside of our comfort zone and like going through that. And often going through that gives us a little bit of clue to kind of who we are, what matters, and and all of these kind of like deeper things that are really foundational to uh, being a person. Mm.
0: The perfect note to end on, Steve. Yeah. Thank you. This was really a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, fantastic. Thanks so much. I really did enjoy this conversation. It was a lot of fun. You guys are doing some great work.
0: Thank you, oh, Steve. Thank you.
2: All right. Take care, guys.
0: Bye-bye.
1: Okay, Sarah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I can't believe how many times you worked pickleball into this entire interview, and I think this could be a new. It doesn't have to be a drinking. It could be like a every time Sarah says pickleball, take a sip of noon.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: and like we all start with twenty four ounces before the show, and then after, and this could be a good sweat rate test for people who have been through our
0: programs. <laughs> Just looking for that coachable moment here. Well, you know, when I'm not running right now, so I got, you know, it's either that or swimming or walking. I love it. You (laughs) you know what, Sarah? Don't change ever.
1: Don't go change. But I would consider starting a Facebook page, a blog spot, something on the Pickleball Diaries.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I think I need, you know, a graphic designer to make a really good, you you can't fault me for being uh, dispassionate, you know, (laughs) I I love it. I got a lot of enthusiasm for my new sport. <laughs> awesome. Oh my goodness, you are wonderful to humor me on it. All right. Well, to enjoy discounts from our marketing partners, like Noon, who you just mentioned, Goo, Handful, Curex, Kinesis Sunscreen, and more, as well as many of the discount codes from our many podcast advertisers. Yes, they're all collated in one spot, a page on our website, anothermotherrunner.com. To find that beautiful page with all these deals on it, click on the word about. In the top navigation. Those are the words across the top of our homepage. And then you'll get a drop down menu, and then you click on exclusive discounts. Again, go to anothermotherrunner.com, click on about, and then when you see the drop down, click on exclusive discounts, and you'll be brought to this world where you can say 15, 20, 25%, all this goodness all in one place. Our podcast today was produced in St. Paul, Minnesota by Barry Medore from Fire on the Bluff. Many happy miles.